Uh, kids are always welcome in worship. This is a sermon series about Song of Solomon, so parents use discretion about whether your kids are up for the task of being here. You're in control of those car conversations later on, remember? Uh, I've been trying throughout the series, too, to kind of say, like, hey, this sermon may be a little more PG-13, this may be a little bit more R. Today's still a little bit mostly in the PG-13 category, so just, again, as a heads up. Um, and if any kids are still left, you're welcome to go to your classes. I want to uh, share something with you guys. How many of you are familiar with the term desert island discs? Your desert island discs. Remember the mountain used to do the desert island discs? There's an old radio station. Radio is this thing that's in your car. It doesn't involve your phone. Okay, anyways. Uh, desert island discs are things that, it's an album, it's a CD, it's a piece of music that if you knew you're going to be stuck on a deserted island, this CD would have to come with you. This album would have to be in your possession so you could survive. I want to tell you about one of my Desert Island discs. It's called Tunnel of Love. It's a Bruce Springsteen album from 1987. How many of you know Tunnel of Love? Uh, it's an incredible album. Uh, some critics would call it Bruce Springsteen's divorce album. At the time, he was married to an actress, and then um, he started seeing one of the members of his band, actually. And so that became kind of a whole falling apart, and then he went through a divorce. And this album was made against the backdrop of that. So some real pain in what's been going on. And uh, the music critic for Rolling Stone at the time wrote this about Tunnel of Love. On Tunnel of Love, Springsteen is writing about the promises people make, make to each other, and the way that they renege on those promises, about those romantic dreams we're all brought up with, and the internal demons that stifle those dreams. I think that quote from Rolling Stone really summarizes why Tunnel of Love is one of my Desert Island discs. I love it because it shows how difficult and complicated the work of love is and how joyful it is. It gives this great depiction of why love is worth it. And it defies a lot of our categories. In a similar way, Song of Solomon chapter 2 defies a lot of our categories. The whole book does, right? And if you haven't been with us, it's totally fine. I'll take a moment and kind of catch us all up. Song of Solomon is a love poem. It is an epic poem. It's wisdom literature. It's a section of the Bible that is really hard to track with if you're a linear person. Like if you like A plus B plus C, you probably don't like Song of Solomon. Today's text is linear in how we're going to present a theme that comes up in it again. And we're going to talk about the word love, and we're going to talk about how the Bible defines love in this section of the scriptures. And so we're going to try to peel back some of that mystery, some of that lack of, of it being linear. And like the video reminded us, our big themes throughout this study, if you've ever been in a sermon series about Song of Solomon, this might be throwing you for a bit of a loop. We have three characters. We have the woman who's the, hero, the heroine, the hero. We have the shepherd. And then we also have the king. So it's a three-part relationship that deals a lot with contract and with covenant. And if you want to catch up on any of this, I'd encourage you to grab the app, grab the podcast, go online. Uh, all of the teaching team work that's been done on this, I think, has been really good. And it's been really fun to do together. So we're going to look at three different words for the word love, three different Hebrew words that refer to love. Uh, many of you are probably thinking of C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. Uh, this is sort of a corollary to that. Lewis talks about the four words that are used for love in the New Testament. So this is kind of the Old Testament version of that. And The Four Loves is a wonderful book that I highly recommend. The key word for the study today is intensity. Each level of love that we talk about in just a moment varies based on intensity. It's not one's better than the other. It's not 
one is more interesting than the other. It's the feeling of when you're in that kind of relationship that the intensity level is being raised. And so we'll actually kind of do a little bit of a pyramid here. And so starting at the bottom of the pyramid is the first Hebrew word we'll talk about, which is raya. And if you're following along in your outline, this is that first heading, companion. God's love is all about intensity, but it starts with companionship. Raya is found eight times in the Bible, okay? Nine, t- nine times total, but eight times in Song of Solomon. It's the bottom of the pyramid today, and we are going to try to sort of progress upward a little bit, because this is the foundation, right? You can't get to these other stages of love and engagement unless you have the stage of Raya. Raya doesn't always lead where these other stages are going to go. It can exist in its own thing, but it's the base level of the pyramid. It's just about being companions. If you like being with someone, you want to be around them. That's the whole major thing of this part of the text. You see the word raya come up in verses 2, 10, and 13 of chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Song of Solomon chapter 2. Depending on your translation, it may sound different than mine. I use the NRSV, which is, of course, the best translation. Chapter 2, verse 2 sounds like this. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. If you have the NASB or the NIV or a different translation, it will say, my darling. It won't say, my love. It will say, my darling. Verse 10, same kind of thing. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Arise, my darling, and come away. In, the, in today's text, these words are spoken almost entirely by the woman. In verses 10 through 15, she's quoting the shepherd, the man who's saying these things to her, but it's still in her voice. The shepherd pops up in verse 2. That's kind of his unique contribution today. And so he gets the ball rolling on raya, on companionship. Love is how they identify one another. It's a term of endearment. She's saying to him, you are my love. He's saying to her, you are my love. They uniquely bring value to one another and bring joy into each other's lives, which is just one of those subtle and glorious effects of having people in our lives who love us, is that they are joyful over us, and we have a special relationship with them. Mother's Day can be kind of hard for a lot of people. One of the reasons it's hard is because if your mom had a special term of endearment for you and she's no longer around or that relationship isn't very vital, that term of endearment can be painful. So it's a two-way street. It can be hard. And we recognize today in our worship that Mother's Day is a great celebration, and it's also not great for a lot of people. Part of the reason for that is that when we have terms of endearment with people we love and that relationship changes, it gets hard. People who love each other start by first liking each other's company. If you're married, you probably started out just liking being around your spouse. It's kind of a foundational thing. If you don't like one another, why hang around with each other? Now, the foil to all of this is any Matthew McConaughey romantic comedy from the early 2000s, right? Because people launch into these sort of torrid sexual relationship, and they really don't like each other. And there's the comedic aspect of that, like, oh, look at them. They play off each other so well, blah, blah. Then they go to sex. Then they figure out that they actually like one another, sort of. That's why those are romantic comedies, and they're ridiculous, There's no basis for that in real life. The witness of Song of Solomon is that companionship, just enjoying time together, doesn't matter what you're doing together, getting groceries together, running errands, simply being in one another's presence can 
become the foundation for what comes later down the road, which we'll talk about in a moment. It doesn't have to. So if you're a linear person, you're going like, okay, cool, companionship always leads to these later stages of engagement and intimacy and all this kind of stuff. No. Companionship is valuable in and of itself on its own. It doesn't have to lead into anything. It can simply be the place that we reside in relationships that are really valuable to us. Now, in today's text, the trajectory of this relationship is toward intimacy, is toward knowing one another sexually. Verses 10 and 13, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. That sounds pretty invitational. Like, it sounds like they're ready to make that next step. Hear me when I say that it doesn't have to be the next step. That's why Song of Solomon is so helpful. It's not just about being married. This has a lot to say with how we treat people in our lives with whom we need to learn how to enjoy one another and just enjoy one another. Enjoy companionship with each other. Raya is the love between companions on a journey, between people who have a destination together or who just see value in being together. Now, if you're not married or if you're kind of struggling to kind of connect this to something broadly, think about the people you work with. Do you enjoy the company of the people you work with? If you're a leader on a team, part of your job is to create an environment where the people on your team enjoy each other's company. That's not easy to do. But it is part of your job. If you're leading a team, if you are a teacher in a classroom, if you're mom in charge of a household, you want these people to get along with each other. It's helpful to your mission. The journey that you're trying to achieve together is predicated on your companionship being good. Like, I like being around these people. I enjoy doing ministry with them. That's why I'm so thankful for Allie and Ken. Take a look at verses 1 through 4 with me from Song of Solomon. Or excuse me, uh, verse 14. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 14. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Does that phrase, the clefts of the rock, ring any bells? Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 33. Flip back in the Old Testament. Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. This is one of the stories of Moses, one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. Listen to this. Moses is talking with God. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the the name, my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is such a fascinating encounter between God and a normal person. Moses enjoyed the protection of God's companionship. They liked being around each other. They enjoyed fellowship with one another, Moses and God, all throughout their journey. Their companionship, Moses with God and God with Moses, demonstrates how this love that we're talking about, raya, does not have to lead in another direction. It can just simply be a good expression of companionship. This is a relief, right? (laughs) This is an amazing thing if you know God. And if you are still kind of kicking the tires on this and you're trying to figure out what you believe, let me encourage you by saying that what we choose to believe in can provide us some kind of protection. And I would ask if your system of belief, if the thing that you value most in your life, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is it providing you protection? 
And is that protection bringing you life? It's been a really full season in my life and my family's life lately. We've just had a lot going on. We had a baby. We've just, it's been good, but there's been a lot. And so my morning routine is I get up and I make myself a cup of coffee and I go sit on my couch. And this particular week, I went and this was like Wednesday, I go and sit on my couch and maybe you've done this and you just feel the weight, the weight of your job, the weight of your family, the weight of the responsibilities you have in front of you. I'm a firstborn child, so that responsibility stuff is like ding, 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 ding. And then I open up my devotional this week and I'm reminded of this phrase, the cleft of the rock. It is a place of safety. God did not take Moses and put him in a place where he wasn't going to get hurt. He just protected him. If you are in one of those places where the pressure is on, where you are feeling it, where you are just where I, where I am sometimes, just kind of overwhelmed, and I admit I'm an easily overwhelmed person, can I just encourage you this week, as I was encouraged, by reminding you that God loves to give us shelter. His companionship is our cleft in the rock and our storms. He doesn't pull us out of the storm every time. He doesn't necessarily stop the storm, but it gives us a place to go to, and that's with him. And this can be of comfort to you if you're a student and you're facing finals and you've got tryouts and you've got all kinds of stuff going on, you're trying to finish the school year well. This can be if you're starting a new business and you're just feeling like, that it's endless, like where do I even start? Do you know that the companionship of God will bring you freedom? As it brought to me. And that is the most trustworthy kind of freedom that we can find the companionship of God, his protection while we're in the cleft of the rock. I encountered that this week in sort of my rhythm, like the thing that I do where I make coffee and I sit on my couch in my bathrobe and my slippers. There's an image for you. What is that practice for you? If you go looking for comfort, where is it coming from? If you're a follower of Christ, have you found a place like my place on my couch? Have you, find, have you found a spot where you can know the cleft of the rock, the comfort of God? If you don't, that's okay, but try to find it. And if you're not a Christ follower, what is the practice for you where you find comfort? And where would that be more meaningful for you? Where do we need to ask God for the protection that comes just with his companionship, just with his raya love, for ourselves or for someone else? So that's companionship, that's raya, that's the first part of the pyramid, God's protection, his provision available to us through Christ right now. So now let's look at the next level up. We'll go to the second part of your outline. This is the word ahava. Um, Some of you have studied Hebrew up here. You're all grateful that I'm not trying to write this in Hebrew. (laughs) It's really confusing. (laughs) We see ahava in the following verses in the text. So if you look at your Bible, it is in 2, 4, 5, and 7. The word love there is ahava. Ahava is similar to the Greek word phileo, which is, again, from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. It means intimate friendship, intimate, deep, trusting friendship. And it is by far the most commonly used love word in Song of Solomon. So typically, when we encounter the word love in Song of Solomon, it's this kind of love. It's intimate friendship. Now, this isn't the only place it comes up in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is another example of ahava, of intimate friendship. First Samuel 18, I'm going to read verses 1 and 3. This is the friendship of David and Jonathan. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him, loved ahava, as his own soul. 
And then Jonathan made a covenant with David, verse 3, because he loved him as his own soul. It's intimate friendship. It's a step up the pyramid from companionship and into something that is deep and lovely and it is costly. The Bible marks this distinction by going back to our keyword of intensity, the intensity of the kind of love we experience in an intimate friendship. It's just different than mere companionship. It's a different direction. For David and Jonathan, their friendship meant that Jonathan had the opportunity to do something very costly in that friendship. And that's where I think we can relate to this in real life. When we're talking about an ahava relationship with someone in our life, with our spouse, with any kind of situation like that, you can know it by its costliness. Jonathan's relationship with David was costly because in David's worst moment, Jonathan was the guy that had to go to him and say, you're, you're, you're killing it. Like, what are you doing? This is a really bad thing that you're doing. If you know that story from the scriptures, David cheats on uh, his spouse. He goes and has an affair with another woman, and he kills a guy. And who's the person that's responsible for going to him and telling him about all the things he's done? Jonathan. Have you ever had someone come to you when you're so broken and so screwed up and they're telling you that you're just not getting it right? It's a great feeling. But those are the people that the ahava friendship, the ahava type of relationship, have the privilege to step into our lives in that way. It's not many people that fall into that category in most of our lives. When I do weddings, um, I'll often take the groom and the best man and go talk to him for a little bit, kind of have a little private conversation. Uh, I discovered that it's better to do this at the rehearsal dinner than at the wedding. just works a little better to do this the day before. There's usually less alcohol involved. And what I do is really simple. I get the best man and I get the groom and I say, listen, I say this to the best man, you are responsible for the rest of your life for this relationship. You have an investment in your friend, yes, for all the years you've been friends together and you were frat brothers and you were whatever, now that changes. And you're the guy that's going to call your friend who's getting married today, and you're going to say to him, hey, how's it going really? Which guys hate to do. (laughs) So every time I say this in these conversations, the best man is usually like, come on, man. Like, I'm supposed to be having fun. Like, I can, you know, read it in his face. But what I challenge them to is this. It's this ahava type of responsibility for one another. From now on, the best man is tied to that marriage. He's tied to it in a way where he says, I'm going to call you, and I'm going to try to get the truth out of you. And as a result of that, that groom gets to be a better husband and a better man and a better father. And there's usually receptivity when I have this conversation with guys. Let's talk about another costly ahava relationship. Read, uh, let's turn to Genesis 22 with me real briefly. Genesis 22. This is uh, from the story of Abraham when he's called to sacrifice his son, when God is testing him. God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, ahava, love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. The word love used in in that particular verse is ahava. And if you're a parent, this verse, this story, punches you in a place in your gut that nothing else can. And if you're not a parent, you can relate to it as well, because it's a costly scenario. God says to Abraham, take your son whom you love with an ahava, intimate friendship. I'm investing in you. This is costly. This is uncomfortable for me. 
and give him up for me. It's kind of unthinkable, actually. But that's right back to what makes Ahava love what it is. That's where the step up in the, in, in the intensity scale goes. It's costly. And remember, I'm, I'm speaking about this as a parent, but I'm recognizing we have plenty of folks in the room that are not parents. This is not a better kind of love. This is a different kind of love. This is the kind of love that allows us to open up our hearts in a way that we're going to be vulnerable that we never could have imagined. And you don't have to be a parent to do this. If you have a kid on your street that you just love, you're just investing in this kid, he's your next door neighbor, you may have an ahava kind of love for that kid because you'll give up something to make sure that kid does well in life. You're making yourself more vulnerable than you've ever experienced before. Why? Because you're intimately tied to the life of another. You are committed to the life of that other person. And having kids awakens in us a kind of love human beings have that maybe we didn't know was there. Or investing in kids does this. But the awakening the love that this kind of love brings in our souls is always costly. It always brings more joy and goodness and always costs a lot more money than we thought it would. But it's better. It's deeper. It's richer. It's, it's incredible. And that's where we touch back to Song of Solomon. Look at verse 7 with me. Song of Solomon 2, 7. We won't spend much time on this today because this actually is one of the refrains of Song of Solomon. Remember, it's a poem. Poetry often has refrains. So 2, 7 is repeated later in three, chapter 3 and in chapter 8. Chapter 2 says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Remember, this is the woman speaking. By the gazelles or the wild doves, do not stir up or awaken love, ahava love, until it is ready. Ahava love is so powerful that it comes with a warning. If you're not ready for it, stay, just stay in companionship. Like, hang out there. Don't move into it too quickly. Its power can overwhelm us because it's costly. As one of our teaching pastors pointed out at our meeting this week, the good news about 2-7 is that Ahava love can be awakened. It can be awakened in anybody. So the coldest person that we can think of, they actually have the capacity in them, if the scriptures are accurate, and I believe they are, to love in such a way that they can love sacrificially. That's good news. That is really good news. Whether you are someone who is a mom, or you long to be a mom, or the idea of being a mom is repulsive to you, the invitation is there to have that part of your heart awakened. In parent relationships, and in investing in kids, in, in a David and Jonathan type relationship, however. And so my question is, who is God beckoning you toward to invest in in an ahava type of relationship? Who could that be? Is it someone who's hurting? Is it a coworker who's showing up and they are just struggling? Like it's all over their face. They're just in the pits. Maybe it's a kid in the class with you, a kid on your street that's totally pretending to have it all together. This is the freedom offered to us in the gospel. When we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and what he offers to us is good and true, we are awakening that type of ahava love for him that calls us into intimate friendship, calls us into worship, calls us into sacrifice. So, companionship, intimate friendship, and now we're going to talk about the final word in our series of love words, which is the least fun-sounding word. It's dode. Whoop, D-O-D-H-D. See? Not right in Hebrew. My spelling's still bad. Uh, dode is the word for sexual passion. 
the word actually conjures up images of fire and like a boiling pot of water, that type of desire. Boiling passion is the word that we want to come up with. Weird Hebrew trivia, Dode is also translated in the Hebrew as cousin or uncle. I will let you interpret that as you want. Cousin or uncle is the translation outside of Song of Solomon, because within Song of Solomon, the word dode is almost exclusively used to talk about strong sexual desire, strong sexual love for one another. An article I encountered this week says that the root of the word is that image of fire, that's where we get the boiling thing, and two of the uses of the word dode actually in Song of Solomon refer to alcohol. So we need to kind of look at this for just a minute to clarify. Turn with me to one, uh, Song of Solomon 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love, dode, is better than wine. And then flip over to 5-1. I come to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gather my myrrh and my spice, I eat my honeycomb with my honey, I drink my wine with my milk, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Is the Bible condoning drunkenness? Is this okay? Is it okay to just go out there and just have a whole bunch to drink, call Uber, and have a good night? Not at all. Why not? Look at the subject of each of those verses. The subject of each of those verses is not drunkenness. That is not what is being lifted up. In chapter 1, verse 2, the subject is love, which is the thing which is positioned as superior to good wine. Not on equal footing, superior. Love is better than wine. It is more desirable. It is more satisfying. And then 5.1 says, be drunk with love. Again, what's the focus of that sentence? It's not being drunk. It's love. Specifically, this boiling hot desire for sexual intimacy. Enjoy the euphoria that comes with companionship that is appropriately layered over intimate friendship and companionship. Remember, these things don't have to lead into one another. But if you try to go after Dode and you haven't gotten to intimate friendship and if you skip the stage of companionship, you're out of whack. And it doesn't lead to good stuff. A covenant relationship alone has the ability to handle this boiling passion that exists within Dode. And like we talked about in week one and week two, covenant relationship, according to the scriptures, is in the context of marriage. And that is so contrary to what our world believes. And yet, if the witness of the scriptures is true, it is the place where Dode can exist and not destroy us, and not destroy the relationships that we have in our lives. And if we are able to say, the person that I want to pursue this with is someone that I actually enjoy being around, not the Matthew McConaughey comedy. And there's someone with whom I've built up this costly friendship, and I would give up my freedom for them, I would give up parts of my life so that they could thrive. And if there is not a system of abuse here, this can happen. If you've got abuse in here, throw it all out. It all goes out the window. And the theme, once again, and I'll say this as we wrap up, is intensity. It's the intensity of love. Now, if you're kind of analytical like me, and you can sort of camp that out in your brain, you're like, that's great. I like the word intensity. That's cool. Intensity is the foundation for, these, for this passionate kind of relationship that doesn't just exist between people. It exists between people and God. And God's people, when they are passionate about his mission, when they have received his word, when they've been touched by the spirit of Jesus Christ, that intensity, nothing can conquer. 
because it's the intensity that's founded in the love that God gives to us. So I came across an article this week that I think did a good job of applying intensity to discipleship. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, I just want to encourage you with these words as we finish. When we talk about love in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, the primary and dominant words do not stress the relationship, the object of the emotion, or the motive behind the feeling. Instead, the word emphasizes intensity. And this is perhaps a useful lesson to those of us with analytic hearts. To put love through a qualification and categorization phase is to almost entirely miss the point that love is supposed to be an almost immeasurable human emotion. May we each have that emotion, that almost just immeasurable, passionate love, and may it be directed toward our God, toward our families, toward our church, and toward those he brings into our path through the mission that he has for us. Friends, that intensity belongs to us through Jesus Christ, and he is calling us to apply it to him and to watch how it sets the rest of our lives on fire. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, you are the author of love, and your word teaches us that perfect love casts out fear. And so for any of us, where there are places of fear, where there is discouragement, where there is pain, would you drive out those things through your perfect love? We all have idols, and our idols don't just need to be torn down, they need to be replaced. And so would you replace in us the idols of power or greed or beauty or any of these things that are so common in our relationships and instead replace them with your goodness and your mercy. May we be a people who desire companionship with you and intimate friendship and receive that passionate love through Christ that calls us out to be his people in the world. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we continue in our worship. Gracious God, we are thankful for mothers. We're thankful for their gifts. We're thankful for their wisdom and their care. We're thankful, God, that by your design, each of us had a mother. And we recognize this day that mothers give a lot, and so we want to honor them and pray your blessing on them. We also recognize that in our world, there are so many for whom moms, the subject of being a mom or their relationship with their mom, really hard and really painful. We know many who serve as moms, who do not have children of their own, but are loving and caring and giving out of their hearts to benefit other kids, to benefit other families. We celebrate and recognize those folks who step into the role of mom. We recognize, God, that there are those who long to be moms and infertility and other challenges present um, such barriers. And so we hold that out to you as well. All the things that we can't possibly think of, all the, the spectrum of ways that we encounter moms, we know you stand at the very center because you are the giver of life. You gave breath to the first humans and you gave purpose to us. 
as mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, grandparents, all the different titles and roles that we have. And so we thank you this day. We thank you that we can bring our moms to you. We can bring all of our lives to you. We thank you that in our community, we have some amazing moms. And we thank you that in our community, we have the opportunity to connect to one another in such a way that builds out a vision of your kingdom for this city. And so God, as we go forth uh, from here to go be with family or to be with friends or wherever we're headed and into the week ahead as we go to the marketplace, as we go to schools, as we go into our businesses, we ask God that you would go before us, that you would create opportunities for the presence of Christ to just be made so real, so tangible to the people we love, to the neighbors that we barely know, to the strangers that we may not be able to give them the time of day. Would you make us a willing and available people to be vessels of your peace and your shalom in our community and wherever we go from here? God, we are thankful. We ask, Lord, that you would use us to bless and serve others for the purposes of Christ. We ask in his name.